When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I distinctly remember I can like visualize it in my mind's eye today. I got an email back that said, you're getting this email because you made me and Samantha laugh. And I was like, I made Samantha be laugh. Hey y'all, and welcome to a brand new season of Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. Official welcome back into the studio. I'm so happy to be here with you. Yeah, you know why I'm happy to be here with me too? Mm -hmm. Because (laughs) we have... So many exciting places that we are going to go on the podcast this fall. From the soccer field to the hip-hop studio to underwater caves deep inside the earth. Caroline, I think it's safe to say it's going to be a good time. And no scuba suits needed today, y'all, because we're kicking off season six with comedy writer and actor Ashley Nicole Black, who first graced our TVs as a correspondent on Full Frontal with Samantha B. Or maybe you've seen her co-starring on a black lady sketch show on HBO, which, rad fact, is the first TV show with an all-black female writer's room. So here's Ashley in a sketch called Annoying Woman, playing an aspiring influencer who surprises one of her teachers from high school. I couldn't pass up a chance to thank the teacher who gave me my eyes. <laughs> Remember me? Uh, my first day in your class, you taught me the word insufferable. Kristen, like, I have been in love with Ashley Nicole Black ever since I first saw her on Full Frontal. Like, watching her correspondent work is a thing of beauty. Because whether they were sending her to talk to Trump voters at a convention or civil rights activists— Her segments were always, like, super accessible and enlightening and definitely hysterical. But all of that almost didn't happen. She was on the verge of becoming Professor Ashley Nicole Black before she stumbled into sketch comedy, like, basically looking for some non-school-related self-care and realized that this whole world of sketch and improv felt like home. So today, Ashley's going to tell us how academia helped her land full frontal, what it's like working in female-run shows, and how to really own what you're good at. Okay, Caroline, one thing that Ashley Nicole Black is definitely good at is being hilarious on Twitter. So even if you don't know exactly who she is, there's still a good chance that you heard about her Twitter meet cute with Elizabeth Warren back in May. I mean, truly one of the craziest stories. It (laughs) 
like sounds like a romantic comedy opener. <laughs> um, I was on Twitter late one night, and you know how if you've missed the news feed during the day, like it kind of piles up. So I was just going through, and so many people had tweeted about like different plans that Elizabeth Warren had, and it just seems like every day she came out with twenty five new plans. <laughs> um, and so as I was seeing like so many plans on the timeline, just like as a joke, I tweeted, "I wonder if Elizabeth Warren has a plan for my love life." You know, just like. <laughs> Just a little joke about, like, how she has so many plans. And y'all, Senator Warren tweeted Ashley back, quote, DM me and let's figure it out. I just thought that that was so funny. And, like, so many politicians, you know, they have people write jokes for them and they don't quite work or it's not authentic. And, like, just for her to have, like, such a funny tweet, I felt like was such a win. And I was like, congratulations, you're hilarious. In my mind, that was the end of the story. Obviously, I did not DM a senator with my love problems. (laughs) And so I was, like, totally shocked when, like, a day later, she DM'd me and was like, can I have your phone number? I'd like to talk to you. (laughs) And And what was going through your mind as this is happening? So we were actually on set for a Black Lady sketch show, and I'm supposed to be, like, performing. We're on set, and I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, everybody, stop what you're doing. Elizabeth Warren asked for my phone number. I think she's really going to call me. (laughs) We were all, like, waiting for the call. Um, And she actually called the next day. So I wasn't on set. I was home alone, which was to everyone's consternation because they really wanted to be there for the phone call. (laughs) This really is a rom-com. It truly is. It is. And my life is always, it's, but it's always act one. I never get to the part where she meets the guy. I'm always just tripping over my shoes, spilling coffee on myself. (laughs) Getting phone calls yeah, from the senator. I'm you know. very solidly stuck in act one of this <laughs> rom-com. Uh, so yeah, she called and immediately her first thing was like, so let's talk about this love life. What's going on? <laughs> and, and I was really surprised. She's um, really genuine and really kind. And she was like remembering bits that we had done on Full Frontal. Like she's a big Sam B fan. And she was like, you did this and you did that. You have so much going for you. I think you really just got to be confident in who you are and what you have going for you. (laughs) And it was just the like sweetest, most mom advice ever. And then I was like, I don't want to talk about my love life. Let's talk about your campaign. It's amazing. What Ashley's not mentioning here is that she's kind of a pro at talking to political A-listers from her time as a full frontal correspondent. There was the time she interviewed our hometown hero, Stacey Abrams. So how can the Democratic Party rise again in the South? My goal is to reverse engineer what Republicans did. Republicans, wait a minute, how do you unburn a cross? (laughs) Or earlier this year, when Ashley announced her candidacy to become her personal dreamboat, Cory Booker's, First Lady. Will you say Black Lives Matter? Black Lives Matter. Thank you. (laughs) Will you say I love Ashley Black? (laughs) But even though Ashley grew up as a theater kid, she never envisioned the path that eventually took her to work with Sam B on Full Frontal, which would lead her to getting DMs from Liz Warren on the set of a Black Lady sketch show. Cue back in time music. I always wanted to be an actor as a kid. Like, that was the only job I ever saw and, like, really wanted to do. My parents would be like, you could be a lawyer. And I'd be like, yeah, like, I could play one on TV. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it was really all I ever thought about. And so I went to college. Uh, I got a theater degree. 
And I just sort of experienced through high school and college that like it was very difficult to get cast. And just like being a plus size black woman was just like a very difficult road to hoe uh, trying to be an actor. So after college, Ashley decided to stick with theater in what felt like a more employable role as an academic. She loved big ideas and writing, so it seemed like a good fit. And for her master's thesis, she focused on blackface minstrelsy, which all started with, you know, racist white folks entertaining each other by pretending to be slaves. I love to hurt people by telling them this information. Um, Blackface minstrelsy is the first American art form. And so, like, loosely vaudeville kind of comes out of that and then those like radio shows kind of come out of that and then when they moved those shows to television they cast black actors but the black actors had to do the characterization that had been established by the white man on the radio um and so the way we developed what sitcom comedy is was by taking blackface characters and putting actual black people in them. Um, And so a lot of the like typical depictions of black people on television come out of that history. Caroline, you know I love some hidden histories, even, yes, when they're about white folks just being the worst. (laughs) Totally. And even though Ashley loved learning too, once she started her PhD, something about academia just felt off. I immediately knew that it wasn't for me, but I was good at it. And I was young, so I had this idea of, like, if you're good at something, you have to do it. Um, And then also, like, I'm sure many people of color have experiences as well. If you are a Black person and you have a certain accomplishment, people are like, you have to do that. Like, there are so few Black PhDs, you have to get a PhD. And so when I, like, very quickly was like, oh, no, I don't like this, like, It's just not for me. But I felt all of this pressure of like, well, I'm good at it and Black people need PhDs, so I guess I have to be the one who gets it. So I was really just doing something that I wasn't enjoying and wasn't a good fit for, and I just wasn't like in my purpose. Ashley's PhD program was at Northwestern outside Chicago. But as she started to feel more and more uncomfortable in that school environment, she ended up taking a class at Second City, the sketch comedy venue famous for launching icons like Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Amy Poehler, and Tina Fey. Yeah, she started out just thinking it would be a fun hobby. The second I did sketch, I was like, oh, this is what it is. Like, (laughs) all of the things that I don't like about acting are answered by sketch because you write it yourself. And I had never considered writing, but I found that I was pretty good at it pretty quickly. And I was shaping the narrative. I was in charge of what I was doing as a performer. And that was just, to me, it was just the best way to communicate and the most fun I'd ever had. And I was like, this is my thing. That was all Ashley needed to quit her Ph.D. program. Instead of studying performance theory, she started actually performing and honing her identity as a comedian. I did a solo show, and one of the sketches in that show, I wrote a song called Cute. um, And it was basically like um, a list of things that are only cute when white girls do them. Um, And... uh, And it was sort of that academic brain of, like, breaking down race and gender um, and how 
things that we think of as like a woman thing are actually very different when you add like the intersection of race to it. And so I developed this character that was like, you know, at the time, a lot of girls were doing comedy while playing a ukulele. (laughs) Um, Very cute. (laughs) And I was like, I um, loved that. And I was like, I can't be a ukulele girl because I'm black. And so I like put those two things together where I like... (laughs) Did the ukulele girl character singing the song about the list of things that are that aren't cute when black girls do them? Baby voices, acoustic guitar, running and jumping into your arms, having opinions, brown floral skirts, crying in public, speaking up in meetings, talking about your knitting. And that was when I, like, figured out my voice because I figured out how to put that, like, emotional actory side together with the analytical side and be like, oh, I can get away with this analytical argument in this case if I'm playing this cute character. And, like, I started to figure out how to bring those two things together. So uh, we also read that you got creative when it came to landing an agent. So can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about how you arranged that? Yeah. Oh, you guys have done a deep dive. Yeah. (laughs) I actually love to tell people about this because it's fully insane. Um, So uh, one of my best friends and I, Chelsea Devantes, and she and I actually share an office now uh, writing on Bless This Mess. Um, I wanted to get an agent And I didn't know how to do that. So I just literally Googled, like, how to get an agent. And um, the advice in the articles was, like, do a showcase. And I was like, well, what's a showcase? And in L.A. and New York, they do have these showcases. I think it's mostly for, like, college or grad students where, like, an actor will perform for, like, the 30 agents who are in the room. And, like, maybe one of them is interested in you. So I – Went to Chelsea and I was like, what if we make a showcase so that we can perform in it so that we can get agents? So a friend of ours worked at a theater and literally stole um, their list of like every agent's and casting director in town. Um, And then on another deep Google, I learned in an article or someone's advice was like, invite people's assistants to things because that agent or producer might be too busy to come to your show, but their assistant wants to show what a cool go-getter they are. So we invited every agent, every casting director, every manager in town, and all of their assistants. My genius part of the plan was to find 10 other people who agents would actually want to see because like I was not the actor who people were like, yes, we got to sign that girl. So it's like, let me invite that girl. So you come to see her and then I'm just also on the bill. (laughs) um, I actually made a lot of accomplishments by standing next to a prettier girl. Um, (laughs) And so we threw these showcases and the first one I think was, um, I think it was five men and five women And the five men maybe all got agents out of it. So then the second one we did was only women. (laughs) Uh, And that is how I met my agent. Yeah. (laughs) When we come back, Ashley starts a Facebook fight that eventually leads to her big break. Stick around. So, really serious question. Um, how did it feel to take your mom to the Emmys? Uh, <laughs> amazing. Um, <laughs> my mom is like 
a really really solid, really confident person. And it was funny to see her be like, she was like, oh my God, that's Anthony Anderson. And I'm like, do you want to meet him? We can just walk right up to him. She's like, no, 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 I don't want to bother him. (laughs) Uh, But she did not take that tack when we saw the Property Brothers. I have never (laughs) seen my mother run. Like she literally ran and grabbed a Property Brother. (laughs) We're back with Ashley Nicole Black, who won an Emmy for her work on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. But not so long ago, she was a lovable Ph.D. dropout with a side hustle at Second City in Chicago. It's true. So, Kristen, let's catch folks up. How did Ashley end up at the Emmys? Well, her glamorous showbiz life really took off after she made her second major decision— to move back in with her parents. Hashtag relatable. Been there. Uh, so, but it was a good thing, really. Like, Ashley's dad lives in L.A., and he told her, you know, why are you in Chicago scrambling to make rent when you could be doing comedy in Hollywood? And I was like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> objectively, if you look at it, I'm moving back in with my parents at 30. That's pretty rough. But... It was like the thing that made the most sense to do. And I almost immediately got full frontal after that because I just had the ability to fully focus on my work. You finding out about full frontal was not the typical way it usually happens. Yeah. Could you share the story of of how you found out about that job? Yeah. Um. So Colbert had just announced his writer's room for his CBS show. And like two months prior to that, he had written this wonderful article about how like women are amazing and women can do anything and men need to stop like not allowing women to be in leadership positions or whatever. It was a really great article. And then two months later, he's announcing his uh, writer's room and everyone's really excited because like he's probably going to hire a bunch of women because he just, that article is probably a clue. And he, there was like, I think, I don't know, uh, 15, 19 writers and two of them were women and none of them were people of color. Stephen, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a little industrial punch to the gut. And to be fair to him at the time, that's what every single show looks like. The only reason the expectation was for him was different was because of this article, but that's what every late night show looks like at that time. So I had just posted on Facebook like, oh, you know, this is really disappointing. Um, and it kind of started a fight on Facebook where people were telling me like, if you were good enough, you would have gotten the job because comedy is a meritocracy and the best jokes rise to the top. And if you didn't get it, that means you're not good enough. And I was like, well, that's very much not. Were those other comics telling you that or just? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm raising Um, a skeptical eyebrow to all of them. Yes. (laughs) Well, and it was just very much not true because I was like, how do you know that I wasn't the best? Because I didn't get to submit a packet. So (laughs) if the best packet rose to the top, that's great. But mine wasn't in there. So that's just an inherently flawed argument. So... It's not that we're not getting these jobs because we're not the best. We're not getting them because you're not letting us into the pool to even try to compete. And so this went, it was like a big Facebook fight. Uh, This is back in the day of Facebook fights. And a friend of mine sent me an email and he was like, you're absolutely right. I do think you can do this. So put your money where your mouth is. And he had gotten the packet for full frontal. And he was like, this sounds like something you could kill. So go ahead and take it. And he sent me the packet. 
but I just sent it in and I was just truly happy. I can't remember how, but somehow the way they did the submission process, you could tell when they had opened it. Um, So I was just truly happy that someone had read it and I thought that would be the end of it. And I was like shocked to actually hear back from them. Well, so once you heard back from the Full Frontal folks, what was that process like? What did they say to you and, and what happened next? Uh, So you do the first packet, and then they did a second round of packets. So in the first round, you could write whatever you wanted. And at the time, I was writing for a political website. So I had a lot of issues that I had, like, recently written articles about. So I had all the research and the take and all that stuff in my mind, which made it really easy to take, like, that idea for an article and turn it into a sketch or whatever. For the second one, they gave you the stories to write. So then it got much harder because it's like, now I have to have a specific take and jokes on this specific story. And they purposely sent out really difficult stories to write about. I remember one was like, um, there was a law, I want to say in Arkansas, uh, but basically they were arresting women on the suspicion that they had done drugs while pregnant. Um, And it's kind of a trap because it would be very easy if you were not a good candidate to be a full frontal writer to be like, well, these women are bad. You shouldn't do drugs while pregnant. But the reality of it, if you went really went into the nuances of the stories, is like a lot of times people don't know they're pregnant yet or they're addicted to the drugs. And doctors were actually telling women to slowly wean themselves off the drugs and not stop cold turkey because that could be worse for your body and for the baby. And it was just like a really complicated, nuanced issue to even write about and then you also had to try to make it funny and it was like drug addiction and babies and like (laughs) you had to try to make it funny um so yeah so the second round of packets was writing two headlines and then they hired me and I think I had three weeks to move from LA to New York um real returning theme in my life story is a couple of weeks to move across the coast (laughs) (laughs) so uh how would you describe that sort of like working environment and like the priorities there Yeah, I think, um, you know, the first priority is always to make people laugh, looking at what has happened in the news today and how can we write jokes about it. Um, And so it was always sort of like looking at our take was always going to be who's the most vulnerable in this situation and how can we stand up for them? Like it, it would never be that we would punch down or make fun of the victim. And that's not funny anyway. Like truly no one really wants to laugh at a victim, except for like really bad, nasty people. And those people typically aren't funny. Like if you'll notice, this is like the first president we've had in a long time who does not have a sense of humor. And you really, (laughs) you can't have a sense of humor if you want to punch down. Like it's just not funny. It doesn't work. Um, So (laughs) this is just taking me back to post-election when Full Frontal really was like one of the the first things that got me sort of moving again. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, in the writer's room, like, day after the election, like, was there, I don't know, what was that moment like? Uh, well, it wasn't the day after. It was that night because we had to write overnight. Um, so we sort of watched the returns come in and at a certain point in the evening realized which way it was going to go and had to start 
writing in that direction. And I remember like we really sat in silence for a few minutes because how do you come up with something funny to say about something so catastrophic? And then Sam finally said, gosh, I'm really sorry. Um, Because it was actually Sam's first time voting in a U.S. election um, because she is Canadian and um, she had lived in the U.S. for a long time, but had recently become a citizen, I think. Um, So she said, I feel like it's my fault. You know, it's my first time voting and I ruined it. And then said um, she was on one of the last episodes of Law and Order. Like she did a Law and Order and then they shut down and she um, was in Playboy and then they stopped uh, doing nude shortly after <laughs> she was and so she was like I ruined everything and it was like the first thing that made us laugh and so that became sort of like the a funny way into uh the first act because yesterday I voted in an American election for the first time and I broke America <laughs> I am so sorry writing political comedy for full frontal came naturally to Ashley After all, it wasn't so different from her Ph.D. work, you know? She had to analyze news, make connections, identify patterns other people may not have noticed yet, and present an engaging argument. Once, Ashley even got the opportunity to use her master's thesis on minstrelsy after Megyn Kelly told America that she didn't know why blackface was so wrong. And so I jumped like, of course, I'm going to write something in response to this Megyn Kelly story. And so I wrote something for Sam um, of her sort of explaining the history of menstruacy and why you should already know it's wrong and we shouldn't be having this conversation. And I think we were shooting the next day. So I wrote it overnight and then just kind of put it in the prompter and then came in the next morning and Sam was like, are you insane? Obviously, I'm not going to do this. You are going to do this. What's wrong with you? <laughs> You don't know how they got racist, Megan? <laughs> I'm so happy to tell you. Actually, you know what? I'm going to have Ashley tell you because... Oh, because I did my master's thesis on blackface minstrelsy. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. Thanks, Sam. Blackface minstrelsy was... After putting that master's to work for three seasons on Full Frontal, next, it was time for Ashley to head to HBO for a new gig. We're going to get all into that when we come back. And we get a cameo from a past unladylike guest who is not Ashley Nicole Black, even though a lot of people insist that yes, she is. (laughs) Stay with us. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh, um, I am very open about how good I am at things. Sometimes people react um, with shock when a woman says, I'm good at that. But the thing is, I am. And like, why shouldn't I be allowed to say that? We're back with Ashley Nicole Black, who's currently a writer and star of a black lady sketch show on HBO. And y'all, she's not afraid to say it. No, she's not. The show is executive produced by Issa Rae from Insecure. It premiered in August and has already been renewed for a second season. That's right. And I'm super stoked because, Kristen, I did a lot of research for this episode. Me too. And, you know, by that I just mean, like, I watched a lot of TV. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the sketches on a black lady sketch show often start with what seems like 
like it's going to be a predictable scenario, but then a little magical realism gets tossed in. Yes, like right out of the gate in the show's very first sketch, which, side note, features Ashley Nicole Black, like it looks at first like a runaway slave scene. And you're like, oh no, oh God, I know how this is going to end. But then they deliver this unexpectedly delightful twist that we are not going to spoil right here on the podcast because you should watch the show, really. Yeah, you should. I cackled. And for Ashley, this dream job came via her friend Robin Thede, the show's creator. Like Robin texted me and she's like, I'm going to do this show and and you're going to be on it. And Robin is that kind of friend where you're like, you know, typically when someone says I'm going to do a show, it could be anywhere between a year and four years before that thing actually happens. So I'm like, I know Robin. I know this is for sure going to happen. She's just this like spark plug who gets things done. But I wasn't expecting it to happen like next week. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like because shows take a long time to develop. And this was actually like an extremely fast process. So once they pulled the trigger, I had like two weeks to get to, you know, leave New York and get to L.A. And we started writing, you know, right away. And so it was like. I don't know. My friend texted me like, hey, do you want to go on vacation? But the vacation was like the job of a lifetime. Uh, That's amazing. (laughs) So this might be um, a semantics question, but why is it called a Black Lady Sketch Show instead of the Black Lady Sketch Show? It was very purposeful. So they had been calling it, I think, uh, because when you sign contracts, I mean, people care a lot about this. This is the most exciting part of the podcast. Uh, When you sign (laughs) contracts, often uh, the show hasn't been named yet. So they'll be calling it something, um, you know, in the meantime. And it was something like Black Lady Sketch Show. And then we got in the room and it was like, we got to name the show. And we came up with a lot of like silly ideas and ironic ideas. And we just kept returning to Black Lady Sketch Show because it's like, that's what it is. It's Black ladies doing sketch. And so we settled on the Black Lady Sketch Show. Um, And I think it was Issa who was like, but you don't want to be the Black Lady Sketch Show. You want to be a Black Lady Sketch Show. You want them to be 10, 100 more Black Lady Sketch Shows. So it was like a very purposeful choice to have the A instead of the word the, which I love because it's true. We don't want to be the only one. Uh, We're the first and hopefully we do a really good job so we're not the last. Well, so we've also read that, I mean, the show is basically completely led by Black women, right? Like writers, directors, showrunners, everything. Mm -hmm. Um, So how is it working in that environment? And like, how would you describe the writer's room vibe? It was amazing. It was truly like like a sleepover with the world's funniest girls. (laughs) (laughs) um, And I say sleepover because we did work very long hours, but (laughs) it was just like, You know, when you're in um, a work environment and like everyone's doing a good job, but there's always that one person who's the standout that you're like, oh, she's killing it. Like she really gets it. It was just a room of only those people. It was just a room of comedy beast. So every day was just like, crying, laughing, so impressed with the work other people were doing, challenging yourself to do even better work because the bar was just set so high by everyone. And also, like, one of my favorite things about writing comedy is, like, I've been doing this for a long time. You feel like you know 
every joke. Or once you hear a premise, you're like, okay, I know how this story has to go, which you kind of do because once you've been doing it for a while, you get used to it. But working with people who are so good that they surprise you, that they suggest something that you're like, I could have sat here for 10 million years and never come up with that idea. And it's so good. And just the joy of like being surprised and delighted by people's minds all day was just amazing. So is there maybe an example you can share that, I don't know, I don't want to like spoil it for anyone, (laughs) but maybe from episode one, is there an example of that that you can give us? Yeah, actually, there's one from episode two. Uh, So I had pitched and written the Invisible Spy sketch, uh, which is in two parts. (laughs) Oh, I know where I know you from. You're my son's kindergarten teacher. You know me from meeting me a minute ago here at the CIA. No. So in the first part, my character meets and sort of fights her nemesis. And so then they were like, we really want to do a second installment of this character. And so I was trying to think, okay, what's what do you do with that character in a part two? And I thought like, <laughs> oh, um, maybe she's pursuing like this really hot spy and she's distracted and she's like not on the top of her game. But I really didn't know how that story ended. I, and I had thought about it for truly at least two weeks. Like, <laughs> I was just like, I cannot end this story. And Holly was like, oh, she has to be the nemesis. They have to be the same person, which is like, Of course, but also who thinks of that? That's just such a (laughs) bonkers thing for your mind to provide you. And it was just like, um, and I love those moments in the room where you're just like, well, yeah, that's it. That's amazing. (laughs) What are you supposed to be like my evil twin or something? Don't flatter yourself. I actually have a face shape that can carry off this haircut. Do you though? Also, uh, that actually brings us to our next question. Your nemesis, yes. played by <laughs> past unladylike guest Nicole Byer. Um, so, is it true that y'all really get mistaken for each other? A lot. And usually in the most hilariously loving way. Like, I really love every time it happens because it's so funny to me. People will tweet at me, Ashley, I love you so much. I've been following your career. I'm so proud of you. Congratulations on Nailed It. (laughs) I was like, yep, that's not me. But the love that that person feels is real. They just don't know who they love that much. (laughs) It happens kind of a lot. So I like brought it up um, as a joke in the room. I think we were sitting around eating lunch. And then one day this guy, um, this is the only time it's happened in a mean way. It's usually very positive, was angry about a joke that Nicole made and was accusing her joke of being racist, but tagging me because he thought she was me. And it's like very ironic that you're accusing someone else of being racist, but you can't even get the right one because you can't separate two black women in your mind. And so I got that tweet, like literally while we were all sitting around eating lunch and I just Fell, literally fell out on the floor laughing. And they're all like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, look at my screen, look at my screen. And we're just like, oh my God, if we don't get Nicole Byer to play the nemesis, like we have not, like the universe is sending this to us. <laughs> so what is it like not having to tailor jokes to like a largely white audience or being told that you should tailor your jokes? Like, what is it like not having to worry about sort of the white gaze, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even writing for, obviously, a white host. Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I don't think that I've ever been told 
our audience is white, you need to write towards a white audience. No one would ever say that out loud. I think the thing that actually, and also that's not true. Like, um, even if you're on a 100% white show, all white cast, whatever, people of all different races are watching that show. What ends up happening instead is like the gatekeeper between you and the audience is white and you have to get your joke past them. So Mm -hmm. sometimes what happens is like you have a reference, uh, a cultural reference or pop culture or slang or something that they don't know. And because they don't know what it is, sometimes they'll be like, it's not funny. So it's never like the audience is white. It's like the people who cut your checks are white and you have to like sort of get them on board with certain jokes. And so on Black Black Lady Sketch Show, um, everyone, producers, showrunners, head writers are all Black women. And so that kind of translation didn't need to happen. And I found that it really opened up a lot of my creative freedom because a lot of, I didn't realize how much energy I was putting into the translation part of the pitch sometimes. And once that part was out of it, it's like, oh, I have a little piece of extra energy left over. Maybe I'll do two pitches. (laughs) You know, I felt like... um, Uh, my creativity opened up in that way. And also we got to explore, which I haven't had the opportunity to do before uh, because I haven't really worked with a lot of other Black women because typically uh, people feel like once they hired one, they did their job. (laughs) Uh, So we got to explore a lot of intricacies within the culture and differences and diversities within Black women that typically if you're the only one on a show, you're just trying to get any Black perspective onto the show at all. Um, But when you're not the only one, now we can dig into class disparities and bougie bitches be like this and hood bitches be (laughs) like this and, and those inner conversations that we have all the time amongst ourselves, but we don't get to have on television because we're usually alone. Do you have any examples of a time when you have had to do that translation work, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I once uh, pitched a sketch that was, like, based on Scandal, and the producer hadn't heard of the TV show Scandal. So he was like, because no one watches this show, we can't do a period of it. And I think that's even more of a gender thing than a race thing. But it was like, at the time, it was at its peak. So it was like, well, this is, like, the number three show on television. Pretty sure people will know what we're talking about. Um, and meanwhile, like when they when they make jokes about like uh, Batman or Mad Magazine or whatever, I'm not allowed to say I don't know what that is, so it's not funny. Like I have to know all of your references, but you're not willing to learn about this ABC show, this hit ABC drama. <laughs> <laughs> That's my reference. I mean, also just not knowing what scandal is. is uh, there's no excuse. Truly yeah, no it's excuse. truly like you don't have to watch it, but like you should know. It would just be like if I was like, "Who's Oprah?" Like what? <laughs> You should know. <laughs> um, so you are correct that we did some deep dives yes. and perhaps some internet <laughs> some, stalked you. Some good, yeah, yeah, Google stalked um, I feel like I'm, we, this is like my police interrogation. <laughs> the research I hope it's a very was fun done. One. <laughs> we we have a dossier. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so in the process, we've kind of developed a theory about you uh, <laughs> that. You seem really good at finding and, more importantly, seizing the opportunities you want, especially in comedy. And I'm curious, like, does that feel true to you? Um, no. Uh, I'm glad it <laughs> looks that way. I, 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 um, it feels really nice to be seen in that way. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm curious why you think that. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, we've got the agent story. Yeah, the agent story, the the Sambi packet story. Like, sure, like your friend let you know that that was going on, but you freaking sent your packet in. Um, even even the whole like quitting PhD. Oh yeah, and. Like making the life that you needed, recognizing albeit, like, you weren't happy, and yeah. like going after for what made you happy. Well, I'm like truly getting emotional, um, and also like I'm alone in a room. Uh, for, for the listeners, they're not here. Um, yeah, I guess so. I think to me, all each of those things was like, like my interpretation of like getting Samantha B is like, oh, my friend gave me this packet, which is amazing. I thank him annually, and then like. Joe Miller and Samantha B gave me this job or like, yeah, me and my friend putting together that showcase was pretty ballsy, but then my agent signed me. So I think like my, in my brain, I had framed it as like so many women have given me all of these amazing opportunities. Um, and hearing you frame it as you have created and taken so many opportunities is, uh, really overwhelming. And yeah, I would love to see myself in that way. I'm going to work on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we definitely see you in that way. So do you have any advice for folks who might feel stuck and don't know how to make a break for it? I think for me, part of the attraction of a PhD for me was like, you get a a professor job and then you get tenure and then you're just uh, set for life. Uh, That is not the case. I think we have this like idea from, I don't know, the 50s or something that like, oh, you get a job and you work and then you get a pension and a 401k and you retire. And like that world truly does not exist anymore. So I was like, if I'm going to be broke either way, I can either be a broke academic adjunct going from job to job and not happy. Or I could be a broke comedian going from stage to stage and be happy. But yeah, I think a lot of times the thing that holds us back from making that choice is an idea about safety. And uh, maybe this is a dark way to look at it, but you're always not safe. So you might as well be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Put that on a pillow. (laughs) And ladies, what you are really good at or maybe what you're feeling stuck in let us know on the socials at unladylike media or by joining our facebook group and finding the thread for this episode you can also email us at hello at unladylike.co and don't forget to subscribe to unladylike in your favorite podcast app so you can go on all of those exciting season six journeys with us and speaking of subscribing you can also head over to our website unladylike.co to sign up for our newsletter for a weekly dose of actually good news about women in the world Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer, and Sam Lee is joining us for this season as a producer. Yay, Sam! Welcome! Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Special thanks to Cody Scully at Stitcher in LA. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week. Remember I was telling you that the hormones were starting to kick in? Well, there was this little song that was on the Triple X album called Lick. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ma'am, <laughs> what is this? And how do I get my boyfriend to do it? <laughs> <laughs>
We're talking about Trina, Nikki, Megan the Stallion, and all your favorite women in hip-hop with Regina Bradley and Christina Lee, hosts of the podcast Bottom of the Map. Remember, y'all, got a problem? Get unladylike. No, it, it's homing. Honing is when you sharpen something. Homing in on is when you're like sending a missile to it. I just had a flashback. I think you and I had this exact conversation when we were working at the Red and Black together. Really? Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah, no, it's it's homing. It's, it's homing. Stitcher. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket, worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.